Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Elevate Podcast. My name is Eric Johnson. I, as always, joined by my co-host, Sean McCoy. Sean, how are you doing? Living the dream as always, my friend. How about you? Doing very well. Great episode today. The Talking Point segment will be with the founder of ESG Today, a really cool news kind of curating service, Mark Siegel. So we're excited to talk to him about that. And then we're going to jump into the case study segment about geospatial software integration with the guys over at Matador. We're going to be talking to Vincent Lamb and Sean Huang. And then we're going to follow up with a little bit of insight to help us understand what all that means with a gentleman by the name of Dougal Hanton, who is the Vice President of U.S. Operations for Vertex Resource Group Limited. A very cool high-tech episode, so let's dive in. Welcome to the Talking Point segment of the podcast. Eric, when I was a kid, I remember one of the first, I guess, environmental kind of things that came up is the Brazilian rainforest. It was always one of those things that was at the forefront of, I remember, radio and television and things of that nature. And it kind of gave me that first taste of the you know, around preservation and conservation. Do you remember those kind of conversations when you were a kid? I do. You, you definitely think back to all the things that we were kind of forced to worry about as kids. And that was definitely, definitely on the list. Yeah. And it was almost like it didn't have to be explained. Like you just, you knew, yeah, we, this, this probably isn't a good idea to, to cut down a bunch of trees in this beautiful, amazing, big, huge rainforest, especially as you got to know about it later. And so to that, this kind of leads into our guest today. And so we have not only somebody from Brazil, but we have a, a fellow lawyer, an environmental lawyer. Ana Lucy Grisi is a, a, is a partner at the Verano Law Firm in Brazil and an emeritus board member from the Nature Conservancy as well. She has a post-MBA on corporate governance from the St. Paul School of Business, an LLM in environmental law from PUC, and an expert degree on environmental law from the Sao Paulo State University. She's the co-author of the book, Civil Environmental Liability, published in 2003, and author of the book, Environmental Law Applied to Agreements, published in 2008. So Eric, I think we have somebody we can spend quite a bit of time talking to environmental law about. That for sure. And I'm excited that we have our first lawyer on the show. <laughs> the podcast is getting better and better all the time. It's getting better and better. So with that, Anna, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. So I kind of wanted to start, if it's if it's okay, as we said, we talked about the Brazilian rainforest is something that I think everybody's heard of, and we've been hearing about it from the time we were, you know, for decades now, at least in our perspective. Can you give us a little bit of a kind of an update? As an environmental lawyer, somebody in Brazil, what is going on with the Brazilian rainforest right now? Sure. So this is one of our trending topics here in Brazil, again, I would say. You heard it when you were a kid, but we are just still discussing the same topics regarding the Amazon biome, our rainforest. First of all, it's not only in Brazil, we are talking about a forest, a rainforest that reaches in other countries as well here in South America. And that is really, really important when we talk about the flow of water in the world. Today now we discuss the flying rivers and we also have the issue of the temperature that the forest is so relevant in order to regulate. But what we are discussing right now in Brazil, again, I would say, why is it a trending topic? 
Brazil, in my opinion, lacks enforcement of environmental rules. And this leads to a very high risk appetite from businesses. Besides also the illegal activities that we have here. So due to this enforcement that is very, very low. Due to this scenario, we have a rainforest that is very rich on wood, on the kind of timber that can be negotiated, and also has all the diversity within the bio that we have there. For instance, we have researches for cosmetics, for pharmaceuticals, and also for the food industry. But we are again discussing deforestation and also the fires in our rainforest. This is the scenario that has been on the road for a while, I would say, at least in the last 20 years. And we are still at the same steps here. We lack enforcement, then we have a high risk appetite, plus illegal activities. I believe that you might have heard about the issues on deforestation connected to commodities or to the meat industry as well. This is also a trending topic due to the ESG context. Consumers are now demanding to understand the track record of the products, either it is a commodity or it is such a soy that was in the media last week again, or a meat. So we are still in the same steps here. We have the same issues that could be improved if we got our environmental laws really to be enforced and produce effects. One thing I want to follow up on, and I think we have an international show we've got, and I love that we're talking about Brazil, but there are a lot of our listeners that are U.S.-centric. They think about, when we think about environmental enforcement in the U.S., we think about, especially with the Biden administration coming in, you, you think about you think about the opposite of what you've just described, Annalou. You, th- you think about actually pretty strict enforcement, and that's true at the state level as well. So when you think about the EPA, you think about those things. We think about really strict enforcement and a lot of tight rules and regulations that are that are put out there. And so I just wanted to take a step back and, and talk about a little bit about Brazil and ESG generally. If we've got lack enforcement, if, if we've got a high-risk appetite on operators and others that you know work in the space, you know, how does that... How does that mesh up with ESG in Brazil? I think in the United States, we're seeing a hard push on all these fronts, especially in the e-bucket, especially from a regulatory side. What are you guys seeing in Brazil and how does that work in kind of a lack enforcement environment? That's a very good question, Eric. When we had the ESG topic here, boosted by the pandemic by March last year, the first point that raised it to my mind was, wow. If we do not have environmental compliance on a day-by-day basis, how are companies, banks, and our financial entities here, how could they be labeling themselves as ESG companies? So I was so worried with that that I wrote an article regarding the need to validate the reporting on ESG. As we have very low enforcement or even a lack of enforcement of environmental rules in general, I'm very worried about this kind of ESG labeling. I'm not sure if we are able to validate the claims right now. So in regard to your career, as far as like, this is not a new thing for you, as you had mentioned, you're quite, quite experienced with this. So what gives you hope about what's coming? I mean, are you seeing any kind of changes in terms of accountability? Are you seeing... You mentioned, you know, the the pandemic kind of pushing things of that nature, which we've seen here as well. But do you feel like the pendulum is is shifting more towards the responsibility side? 
Yes, for sure. And why is that? Not because of our environmental system here or enforcement in Brazil, but because our companies and our banks will be impacted indirectly or directly, I would say, by the rules overseas regarding ESG. So once we have the taxonomy and the European Union, once we have the SEC in the US deciding about who can be labeled as, as an ESG company, what are the targets that you have to meet in order to call yourself an ESG company, then it will impact our companies here and they will then be mandatorily driving to compliance, I would say here. But because of these international rules, And there is also another path here for the compliance, which are the consumers. Once we have our exporters here subject to clients over the world demanding to understand the track record of the products in order to ensure that they were not derived from a deforested area, for instance, from the rainforest, these will also motivate companies, businesses in general towards environmental compliance. Yeah, I think you, Annalie, I think you hit on the two most important drivers when people really sit back and think about We certainly see it in the United States. You know, what were the two most important drivers of the last few years? It wasn't the federal government. It wasn't Trump. It was capital and customers, right? It was if the money is disinterested in investing in you, you've got to make a chain. And, and if your customers or, in a, you know, say you've got a, you know, one of the super majors that's going to insist that a service company perform in a certain way or do certain things, that's going to drive behavior as well. So it sounds like, you know, what hit the U.S. and, it, and has been driving change here is doing the same thing, I think, eventually in Brazil as well. Would you agree with that? For sure. It will happen likewise when we had our environmental laws by the year of 2000. They were not enforced. They were not as strong. But we have several companies here in Brazil that are multinational companies and that were receiving orders from their headquarters regarding environmental compliance. And these headquarters, of course, were in the US or in Europe. So I do believe that's going to happen likewise, but this time we'll have companies here suffering or impacted by the roles over the sea regarding ESG, either labeling or reporting, I would say. Since the beginning of my career, I was sure that the flow of money was the best driver for environmental compliance. And this is what we have now in concrete, especially when discussing Brazil. If we analyze our central bank, it was not a part to the network for granting the financial system, which is an international association of the central banks. But then in the middle of the pandemic, we have by September last year, our central bank joining this network and then informing that they would be incorporating the ESG rules within their own central bank financial rules. And this will for sure cascade to public and private banks. So again, we will have the flow of money inducing environmental compliance for sure here. So, so Anna, can you help us understand a little bit about, from an industry standpoint, oil and gas, is it seen as one of the, obviously one of the big contributors to ESG issues in terms of it as a negative? And then how do you see there the oil and gas industry playing a part going forward in Brazil? So due to its nature, these are businesses, oil and gas, that are heavily impacting the environment. But this is due to the nature. We have been having great discussions here on whether such businesses should be discontinued. 
I would say that on my perspective, as an environmental lawyer, there's always room for improvement and innovation on our well-known old sector such as oil and gas, and we still depend on it. I'm not convinced that we would really be able to live without oil and gas businesses, either as energy sources or as raw materials or inputs. Here in Brazil, for instance, we have great organization from oil and gas which is the Brazilian Petroleum Institute, IBP, that has been playing a great role in discussing about greening petroleum activities in addition to discussing the carbon market. You might know that in Brazil, we still do not have a carbon market. Our government is still analyzing if we are going to have a tax or if we are going to have an economic instrument. So these are two topics, greening and carbon market, that are crucial for the oil and gas industry. We are still discussing it. Brazil is a lot dependent on the, this kind of industry. I believe it will take a while for us to really understand how to deal with it and improve it. I want to go back to something you brought up earlier, which was kind of you know, companies waving the ESG flag and, and claiming to be ESG superstars. And, and there was concern that maybe that's not true. It's more marketing than it is substance. And certainly that kind of issue is present in the United States. And we see in other places worried about, you know, people claiming ESG, but it's not really ESG. In the Brazilian markets, whether it, whether it be financial markets, whether it be just in, in the market generally with customers and suppliers, you know, what are you guys seeing you know, inside oil and gas with respect to, hey, we're green, hey, we're ESG friendly, and, and how is that being received in the market and perceived by, you know, regulators and everybody else? I would say that our oil and gas companies here are very cautious regarding the ESG flag or labeling. They are just in babe steps discussing about greening the system, how to improve the activities or operations, and also about the carbon market. But and they have been discussing a lot about the carbon market, especially at the institution, the IDP. But I've not seen flags on ESG. As I said, as a first step, I would say also for this kind of industry, we need to understand which are the materialities that flow within each of the letters because we have several matters encompassed by the E for environmental matters or for the S, social matters. I am even questioning companies that are labeling, labeling themselves as ESG, not oil and gas companies, because I have not, not heard this from them, yet, from them yet, but other companies, because I'm standing for ESG, but what does the E mean for my activity? What is material? What is not material? What I am flagging here that I'm in compliance with, or even beside, I am doing something extra law or extra enforcement here. It's still a very gray area, I would say. I wanted to ask you a, a personal question, kind of. Obviously, with 21 years as an environmental lawyer, you've been facing a rather uphill battle for a long time. And while ESG is coming into the narrative now and everybody's very excited, you've been fighting this fight, especially on the environmental side, for a long time. W what has kept you motivated all these years to truly fight for the environment? Well, a very interesting question, Sean. Let me give you my perspective here. I always believed that the time would come for companies to understand that we need to use the environment in a wise way so that it remains existing. Because our own existence depends on natural resources. I need the air, I need water. And this is basic. 
I could never understand how could I see some events on the environmental field, such as companies discharging wastewater out of the parameters if their own activities depended on water in order to survive. So I was always searching for who are the responsible for these kind of orders, who are the corporations or who are the guys that decide this. And then I reached the corporate governance topic and I understood about the board of directors and I understood that I had to keep on working on the awareness of the economic essentiality of the environment in order for companies to continue existing. So I was I always in this path. And then I, I'm going to be very honest. Last year by March, when the when COVID reached us here in Brazil, the pandemic started here, I was rethinking my life and I was in doubt if I would be able to continue to be an environmental lawyer in Brazil. Is our previous economic crisis always led to environmental matters being not a priority or being left for two or three years ahead again in order to be complied with or even discussed? So with the pandemic, I was really worried in the beginning that I would have to choose, choose another career. But then fortunately, everything changed and the DESG started to be a trending topic And now we have a very good context in order to ensure that we use nature, natural capital wisely. You know, it was definitely one of the big surprises of the whole thing was this was this change. And it's obviously for the better. And we're very grateful for it. So, Anna, as these things go, it always goes by too quick. We want to thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us all the way from Brazil. We also want to say a special thank you because we also know that if we'd had to do this in Portuguese, this conversation would have been very difficult. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we appreciate the versatility and we just want to continue to hope that your efforts are go well and just wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Whenever you need information on the environmental laws in Brazil, feel free to contact. <laughs> yep. Thank you. All right. So thank you to that. All right, everybody. So we'll take a short break and then after that, we'll hear the case study. Thanks and stay tuned. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the case studies part of the podcast. Eric, today we're going to be talking about Matador. It's a company coming out of our friends up north in Canada, and they are going to be telling us about their geospatial software integration for project collaboration. Excited about this one, Sean. You know, I love the tech stuff. So can't wait to hear these guys tell their story and what they're all about. And, and by guys, we actually have two. We actually have Vincent Lamb and Sean Huang, who are the co-founders of the company. They're here today to talk to us about this, uh, their technology and what they're doing. So we're going to tell a little bit about each one of them, give a little bit of a bio. So Vincent Lamb is one of the co-founders and he's the CEO. He's a visionary and three times 
entrepreneur. He's built and sold his first point of sale system during his university years and later joined Google to lead projects with the Google Earth team. So maybe there might be a side question there too, but Vincent has over 20 years of experience commercializing software for environmental and energy companies. He holds an MBA from the University of Ottawa and has a bachelor's of science in computer engineering from UBC. And then Sean Huang, who's also a co-founder and he's the head of business development. Sean was an award-winning salesperson during his tenure at TELUS which is the largest telco provider in Western Canada with over 10 years of experience with SMB to enterprise level sales and management. He has also co-founded Morphus, which is a mobile VR company pioneering a full 3D walkthrough on mobile devices and successfully exited the company after being featured in a top accelerator program out of China. So I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about with these guys. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show and we're looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having us, Sean and Eric. Yeah, looking forward to it. You're welcome. So Vincent, let's start with you. So help us understand, kind of start in the beginning, what is the issue, the or the opportunity, the problem that was out there that stepped into the, that made you want to step into this problem? It started back then when we when I was, you know, at Google looking at a lot of geospatial applications and, you know, working with the users on, you know, how they are using the maps and and Google Earth, for example. It kind of gave me the idea that, you know, all the a lot of the real life scenarios especially the location-based scenarios, they they all rely on certain part of the geospatial intelligence. Like the, you know, map seems to be a core part of their workflow. And kind of that planted the idea in my head. And then later on, move on to working in a mining software company called Geovia and had more opportunity in working with, again, the mining engineer and other users in the fields. Start talking to them. And it seems like there is a recurring theme of not having a platform that is intuitive enough for them to access all the necessary information. By that, I mean, you know, they're looking at maps on one hand and then looking at their spreadsheet on project schedule and then having to check the emails for updates and stuff like that. So it seems like there is a wide range of tools, you know, these uh, professionals are using to complete their, it could be a very simple task uh, on their daily, you know, daily life. And so... I was like, why couldn't we build something, you know, that can connect everything together or even provide a one-stop shop experience for them, you know, which will make their life a lot easier and, and the operation a lot more efficient. So that that's kind of the background of how the idea came about. And yeah, we're happy to talk more about that later. Excellent. So Sean, I want to switch to you a little bit. So tell us, so identify that issue, identify that opportunity, walk into it. And as always, bam, here come some issues. Can you give us one issue that you expected to see and one issue that you did not? So one issue that we really expected was collaboration and really the visibility challenges with people that are out in the field. If you look at the other mapping software that are currently out on the market used by oil and gas producers, environmental consultant, you know, SiteView, ArcGIS, any sort of ESRI integrated product, they're very focused on technical user, meaning you need to have a GIS specialist, you need to be well-versed in using it in order to turn complicated geospatial information into a very palatable format for everyone to make, you know, better understanding whether whether they're in the field or whether they're doing their projects. But none of them really address the non-technical user, which is a big challenge because, you know, most people that are working in the field, they don't really have, you know, the GIS background. They don't really have like a laptop open in front of them. So how do they really communicate and really be able to update and share geospatial information? So walking into it, we really expected that, you know, because of the gap, uh, the technical gap, if you will, there was a big collaboration and visibility challenges between multiple parties. You know, internally, 
within organization. What we didn't expect was that there was also problems with external parties as well. So communication, working with, you know, third party, other consultancies, subcontractors, even reporting to the clients was also a big factor as well when we first began building Matador. And so, you know, me and Vincent have been working really diligently on getting customer feedback, how to really improve that experience with reporting and be able to have a more real-time response when, you know, dealing with geospatial information that are constantly being communicated in the field. <laughs> so, so obviously there's those problems and a, and a whole lot more. So, so give us an example as you work through all that and what was the end product? What's the evolution? What is this that we're talking about exactly? Yeah. So what Matador does is we set out to really solve a visibility challenge by placing all key project information on one intuitive map-based dashboard with real-time updates that can be shared between multiple parties and stakeholders. So with Matador, all stakeholders can drill down to specific location with user-friendly GIS tools and key data. So you have your cost analysis tool that we build in, task management, be able to upload files, making it very easy for non-technical user to be able to update and share critical information and also real-time reporting as well. So that intuitive reporting really provides some peace of mind. So we have deadline reminders and notification of critical events. And lastly, the ability to share project data and standardize workflows for vendors using our platform simply facilitate better decision-making and ensures that all projects results in better environmental footprint and ultimately cleaner resource extraction. It sounds like one of those things that just makes, you know, it's like one of those, you know, dumb moments like, oh, that sounds wonderful. So give us an idea after that, now that you've done that. So give us an idea of the application side. So now that you've rolled it out, give us some examples of how this has played out in the real world. Yeah, we were able to, in a recent client that we roll on, they are a uh, energy, they're in the energy sector, oil and gas uh, producers in, in Calgary. Initially, they have been, like before using Matador, they have been, you know, managing about 120 sites per year on average. And what's interesting is that we, it took us about four weeks to get everything up and running for them, including all the trainings and, and in, inviting all their, you know, external parties. They work with a lot of consultants, right? And one of the reason they chose us is because they saw us as a standardized platform for all the consultants to come in and update it in the same format compared to before it was all in a ad hoc and custom built spreadsheets being fly around. So we took about three, four weeks to get everybody up and running. And right after that, we saw, you know, there's an average usage time on the platform for about one hour a day for all the users using Matador. That kind of tells us, hey, you know, people are starting to live within the platform. So they are starting to rely on the platform to communicate, to exchange information and updates, which is really a good sign, which means that they are finding value of it. And, you know, two months later, we actually saw them keep adding more projects and up to a point, I think they are now at 550. So they're from 120 to 500 ish. There seems to be like a five times growth in their productivity. So being able to manage so much more data, just again, prove the efficiency and, and the, you know, productivity that we can provide from the platform side. Yeah, sounds, sounds, oh, so, so in regards to ESG, so to help, help us, I mean, it seems like there's a couple of obvious ones that you could argue around the E part, maybe the G part, but for the two of you, what have you seen come out of this that applies to either any of those three pillars? So in terms of environmental or sustainability, I think after using our platform, we've really seen a dramatic decrease in carbon footprint and, you know, having less commute or travel, less equipment going out into the field simply because there's better communication. So avoiding a lot of unnecessary travel into the field, that kind of in a way reduces, you know, carbon emission. 
for all these sort of heavy equipment going on to the field on a day-to-day basis. So that's very indirectly how we can see it being in effect, as well as, you know, be able to really streamline the whole workflow so that, you know, not just you have less equipment going on in the field, but you have less people going out. And overall, it just really cuts down on, you know, not just expenses, but overall, just make sure all the projects gets done in a more timely fashion without wasting a lot of resources. Along with that, we saw some cases, you know, we, we heard story about where people are using spreadsheets and, and the old, old way of doing things. They don't know other people, what, what their teammates or even somebody sitting beside him are working on. You know, they might be working on the same region, right? Like talking about location-based projects, they might be working on, you know, one, one guy might be working on an excavation and the other guy might be working on, you know, monitoring related activities around the same region. Now, the research, the planning and all these uh, background checks, all these things are could be shared, right? If they know they are working so closely in proximity. And so that's the value we're starting to see is that, hey, by having a platform where all the projects are being visualized, you can actually tell how close the locations are from, you know, project A to project B. A lot of information can be, you know, uh, extracted from an existing project rather than spending the money or the time to site visit and, and do the research again, right? So those are some of the saving, cost saving, and also the, the carbon foot print saving that we're starting to see by using a one-stop shop solution like us. And I think, sorry, just to add on top of that as well, I think, sorry about that. Yeah. (laughs) Just to add on top, I think that's also taking part with the social aspect as well with the ESG as well as governance. One thing we did find with our platform is that a lot of consultants really like the transparency with Matador. You know, they can see how other people are doing, what they're working on, full transparency, you know, there's nothing that's being hidden. And that really provides a peace of mind to clients and other parties that are working together from a governance standpoint. So Sean Vincent, I love our tech, what I would call our tech episodes. I love learning new stuff. And I am, as I've often told Sean, a visual learner. And so I like to see things and do a lot of M&A work, have spent a lot of time in war rooms and conference rooms, whether it be an upstream client or a midstream client. And you walk into the room and the walls are covered in maps full of numbers and references and everything else, right? And everybody is sitting around the conference room table and they have their laptops open, which as a lawyer, I don't even know how Excel works, but everybody else around the table (laughs) has spreadsheets, right? And so to see that, and and so I guess what I I want you guys to hit on, and and, and I realize we're in a podcast format here, but to help people understand how does Matador really work? Like I was used to walking in that conference room and there's maps everybody, everywhere and people referencing things by numbers and letters and, and then looking at their spreadsheets. Just take a little step back and talk to us a little bit, even if it's in kind of a case study format, like this is what you do. You go to our website and you can actually click on all these different locations and what data does it bring up and how does it interact and who can access it? Just a little bit more on, of the meat on the bones around that would be great. Sure. I can kind of talk through that, you know, kind of paint a mental uh, picture in your heads. But I think Vincent can kind of carry off if I leave out anything. So the first thing you log in, best thing about Matador is that, you know, it is platform agnostic. So you don't need to download an app when you're in the field. You can just access it through your browser. So the minute you log in, you can see all your projects laid out very visually on map-based view. And we have the ability where you can toggle between satellite, terrain, other map layers that can be imported in as well, depending on your needs. From there, you can also select quickly a specific project to view. You can also have custom filters. So I have different projects and different statuses, different type of project. You know, I have reclamation remediation type related project that I can really filter and really narrow down to instead of going through countless amount of data on spreadsheets. We also have the activity fee. So I'm sure everyone's familiar with LinkedIn, Facebook, 
the activity on feed on a platform essentially shows any sort of real-time status update and shows the most relevant project updates as well. Inviting collaborators is very easy as well. With Matador, collaboration is a key focus and inviting people can easily be done by just entering their emails, assigning different roles. Once they're inside the platform, it takes them seconds to just set up and they can basically just start inputting data and start drawing things on a map. So before Matador, you generally need a GIS specialist to help you convert complicated geospatial data, like I mentioned before, into a tangible format for project managers, consultants to be able to make informed decisions. Now with our user-friendly drawing tools, you can simply draw down areas, parameters on a map. It's a very simple drop and drag tools. I don't like saying Microsoft Paint, but you know it's almost <laughs> as easy as that, right? So when you draw it, the tool also measures out the distance as well. So once you actually draw or circle out an area of interest, it actually measures out the area right on the spot. You can also have other attributes, other fillers you want to keep track of. And we also have the ability to translate what you view on a map into a table format. And this really saves a lot of reporting time. Because of this function, we managed to save, for example, data reporting, turning it into just a matter of hours. The table format allows you to essentially manage and export the most relevant project information, budget, and we even have a bar that shows the amount of percentage of budget that's being spent in case there's any issue for cost overrun. And lastly, I think everyone really loves customization. That's the reason why we gone into tech is because you you have the ability to really customize different project templates to suit different needs. Because we cater to so many different use cases from site assessment, reclamation, well abandonment, there's so many things that we can do with Matador. And I think the bread and butter is being able to really customize these project templates to suit different needs when you're out in the field. So yeah, that's kind of the brief walkthrough. <laughs> Hope I didn't talk too much, but yeah, no. Vincent, if you have anything to add on that. No, I, I think that's, uh, thank you. And that's a really good overview of the software. Talking about the last part, the customization, that's really one of the bread and button for, button for for people who are working with a lot of external parties, especially when they're expecting updates from them on a regular basis. Right now, they are receiving spreadsheet with different formats, right? And imagine the person who is receiving all these updates on a weekly basis, having to consolidate and reconcile all the different formats spreadsheet into one master one that they can use for reporting. That process is really you know, time-consuming and, and, and error-prone. And the other part is the delayed updates on, especially on the budget and cost perspective. What we find is that people in the field, out in the field, normally they like to, you know, update things. You know, they will wait until a certain moment to update the actual numbers, for example. And even after the updates, it will go through the accounting and all these guys, all these process before it hits the coordinator, like the operator. And so by the time when, when the operator knows the actual compared to what they're budgeted, the difference can be in the six or seven figures. And that's a big risk to these on-guest folks, right? They cannot plan, they are reporting on the wrong number. So by having the transparency of being able to use the pl- same platform, same format, update it on a real-time basis, you know, we eliminate a lot of these unnecessary human errors and, and delays. And finally, one key aspect that we do is, again, going back to the collaboration, we're really focusing on integration. We integrate with other software providers who are in the same space as well. So for example, environmental data provider, you know, who are, you know, providing historical photos, historical reports, or, you know, lab data management software who are, you know, comparing the standards with the lab information. Those platforms are great, but then they're being they're standing alone right now. So imagine if there's a platform that can hook up all these excellent services from them, 
and be able to pull the non-technical and, you know, the key part of this information onto a map and be able to visualize the results of, of those things, it will be so much more powerful. So any company can basically go into Matador and pick and choose what they needed. It's almost like a toolkit that they can find inside Matador for them to turn on and, and they can start integrating and talking to the existing service providers. So that the integration will be a, a key area, area that we will, will be focusing in the future. So this reminds me, years ago when I first started at Schlumberger, early 2000s, I had to go to Lafayette, Louisiana. And I was, Schlumberger has always been a very safe, you know, limit liability and stuff like that. And we had to use a company car to drive from Houston, Texas to Lafayette. So if you know anything about Houston, we're, we try to be as friendly as, as our friends up north. And I always think about Calgary and all that stuff. And we're really friendly down here until we get behind the wheel of a car. And then everything changes and it's madness. And even doing the speed limit in an interstate down here is a challenge even 20 years ago. And that being said, what I, why I say that is, as I think, as you integrated this, if you're, you're monitoring how long people are doing things, how, what's the budget, when you get that data and you're able to pull it out, did you get any resistance from those at the very edge of the operating side that were, didn't really want that many big brother's eyes too far down the lane because sometimes ignorance is bliss. And maybe talk about that integration process and kind of getting that buy-in from the end user as well. Yeah, it's interesting because at the moment when we start talking to them, we're starting to, you know, convey the message of a change, right? Like the, it's adopting a software. It's not just, you know, switching the, you know, the switching button or the icon on, on their on their phone, but it's also changing a human behavior. So we have been pretty consciously letting them know you're not just buying a new software, but you have to change certain behavior, not just yourself, but your team and maybe your clients or, or vendors as well. So along that way, we were trying to pave the path of what's to come. So they have full conscience on at the moment when they signed a, you know, signed a contract and, and subscribe to our service, then they know we can guide them through that change management process. And one of the key things is that, you know, we have to have buy-in certainly from the organization standpoint, like not just the top top execs like this software and they are pushing it down. We actually work our way into, you know, communicating with their actual users, understanding their needs and helping them configuring, you know, everything that they needed. And so that's the time when I was talking about the three or four weeks of setup. That's including, you know, changing the mindset, guiding them through you know, setting it up in their way. And, and so that so that they when they actually jump in, they know what to do. So in terms of the adoption perspective, we're really lucky and, and glad that not really pushed back after this, uh, the sign up. Maybe that's partly because they already have the expectation that it's a, it's a more you know, organizational change than you know, just a simple software buying installation kind of thing. So yeah, I'm not sure that's what you've seen as well, Sean. No, absolutely. I agree. One of the things I want to I want to talk about real quick, guys, and maybe have y'all expand on it a little bit is as we think about ESG, we think about energy evolution and what's going on in the energy business. One of the things that we really need to continue to improve is we need to become more efficient, more effective, do things faster, in all honesty, with fewer people and, and get the job done. I love some of the things I heard earlier where we were talking about efficiency and speed and less field time and less equipment time and doing all of those things, whether it's anecdotal or whatever. Can you give some stories or examples of, of what you're seeing kind of on the efficiency side as, as we think about companies trying to be better at, at their governance and their ESG, but doing it in a more effective and efficient way and how Matador, how the Matador platform is, is pushing them in that way? 
Yeah, as simple as just getting rid of all these spreadsheet nightmare, right? Like, I mean, that's that's haunting most of most of us. You know, using spreadsheet as a system of record is always dangerous. And you know, we have actually some cases. We have found some cases where um, omission on a minus sign on one of the the cell actually costs the company millions of dollars because <laughs> the the calculation is actually wrong. So human errors like that can be totally avoided by you know having a system like Matador. Um, you know, that's one way of efficiency saving. And, and also the other one is the, you know, communication, you know, having to use emails, you know, phone calls, trying to convey those visually driven information, like location information over a phone call is really hard. You know, we have an interesting story told by our customer is that one day they discovered there's a bird's nest sitting on one of the tree as they're excavating the area, trying to clear the forest that region and suddenly they saw that one bird's, bird's nest sitting on a tree and you probably know that you know as you are approaching certain things that you're not certain species that you're not too sure you can't really touch them until you report to, to authority so the whole crew which is costing them like 100 grand a day or something including equipment stuff is on pause because of that one bird's nest and they're trying to communicate that location to the client over the phone and you know they're back and forth you know trying to pinpoint where things are at just wasted wasted so much time. A couple of hours went by, and they still couldn't figure out, you know, where to relocate the crew to work on the next phase of the project. So that was an interesting but kind of a sad story we learned about. And a software like Matador being able to visualize and and pinpoint right there, you know, this is exactly where the bird sense is sitting, and and we are. And then they can draw another area. Hey, maybe the crew, while they're waiting for the response from the authority, maybe we can move them to over this area B, you know, how clear out the land there. So we're not wasting money or time there. That's another way of talking about the efficiency on the field, right? And the example I gave you earlier where companies are passing through different formats of information and at different times and the delay between the field and the office is costing, again, costing unnecessary budgets and time. So there are just a number of cases that we can tell you all about efficiency, improvement, and cost saving just by having a centralized system like that. So one of the things that you mentioned around integration as far as going forward and improving that in regard, and because there's so many different mediums out there, can you tell us a little bit of a layman's example or some, some reasons why, outside of the obvious, just you know, language differences, but what makes integration so difficult in terms of other tech and other, you know, whether it's hardware or software? I wouldn't say it's difficult, especially with the trend where the web 2.0 or 3.0 is coming along. You know, you know, there's a concept of micro microservices, micro vendors. Everyone is focusing on one specialty area that they like for us, we're focusing on project collaboration, visualized visual collaboration, right? But we don't want to get into LIDAR or 3D modeling or or very technical where things like ArcGIS already are doing or lab data management that some other vendors are already doing. And same thing with the data, you know, background data, like there are a lot of background data, environmental background data, water body, you know, wells, pipelines, all these data. There are already companies doing surveying, you know, data collection, but right now they are selling it as a one-off, right? Like waiting for consultancies or operators to, to come to them to buy an a la carte fashion. And then it's really up to the operators or consultants to bring the information back into their own ecosystem and trying to understand and import it into other, you know, their, their existing formats, including spreadsheets. 
that's a really inefficient way of passing information from one, one phase to another. So what we're trying to do is to tighten the gap there to automate things where, you know, if you want to know who owns the pipeline or who is the landowner of this, get the survey from the past 10 years, right? It should just be as easy as just a button, a click of a button inside the same platform. May it be an order from there or it will be it may be already available as part of the platform integration. They can pull it up right, right away and, and make the decision right there without having to find out who to buy it. So those kind of integration is what we're looking for and basically creating a, a space where users can go in and find everything that they needed to complete their work without you know 10 or 20 different software tools in their pocket. Well, gentlemen, I, like I told you, it was going to go by quick. That, was a, that did. It was very enjoyable. That was great. I loved it. I would encourage everyone that's listening to go spend a little bit of time on Matador's website to visualize their visualization <laughs> for you, right? <laughs> but, but I would tell you that if you're working with maps and you're working in projects and those things are just a part of your life, this will be a lifesaver for you. And I think the efficiency gains as we think about you know the, the energy business trying to continue to do things quicker and better and cheaper, it's an amazing platform. So I would encourage everybody to go check it out and actually put eyes on it. Yeah. So thank you, gentlemen, for coming on. Thank you, Sean. And Thank Eric you for having Thanks. us. Yeah. Thank you. No problem, guys. And so coming up next in the inside segment, we have Dougal Hanton, who is the Vice President of Operations for Vertex Resource Group USA. And we'll be back after the break. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to the Insight segment. Eric, we just got done listening to Matador talk about the geospatial software and this project collaboration. Great little conversation that we just had with him. What kind of what stood out to you from that conversation? You know, when you listen to Vincent and Sean and you hear this story of kind of how I think of it, it's this marriage of maps and spreadsheets and communications and reporting and all of these things that people juggle to accomplish their projects. And Matador has tried to put it all in one platform. It, it, it's cool to see all the tech and to bring it all together to make everybody more efficient, more effective. And again, to get the job done faster and better. Yeah. And I think it parallels this need going forward from an ESG reporting standpoint that you need that transparency. You need to pull that data and be accurate as possible. So I think it really fits in with that. But outside of what we think, we're, we've asked Dougal Hanton to come on and give us a little bit of his perspective. And as I mentioned before the break, he is the Vice President of Operations for Vertex Resource Group USA. His career in energy access and development has stretched from the most northern reaches of Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. He has worked directly for EMP companies accessing bitumen resands in Alberta to consulting for small companies using horizontal wells in the Permian Basin. He supports land, regulatory and environmental permitting, production operations, and ARO retirement in the upstream, midstream, and downstream sectors of the energy business. Dougal is a senior member of the Right of Way Association, professional agrologists, and professional biologists. So he's got a few and letters next to his name. And he's also a great, easy guy to talk to. So Dougal, thank you so much for taking the time to come out and do the insight segment for us. Well, thanks very much for having me. 
You're welcome. So I kind of want to start with a little bit like what I just asked Eric. You know, you've heard the conversation we just had with those guys. Tell us a little bit about, give us kind of that macro aspect of where this pain point is. Out in, in, they, they solved it, but tell us a little bit more about how this has been a big pain point for the industry and other industries across the board. Yeah, well, I think it all really stems from data. It comes down to data and what you do with it. Collecting it, number one, where it goes to from there and, and then what you how you use it. So the business intelligence behind it. So, you know, in my current role, we collect a lot of data in the field and where it goes from there is is really crucial to speeding up that efficiency that we were talking about earlier in the segment. So when we look for software, we use, you know, we have a toolkit of software solutions that we use. We've looked at lots of them. We've used SiteView in the past and they're all great, but they're all really when it comes down to they collect data, but they don't really do much with it. It's still a lot of user interface to to get the real gold out of that stuff. So, you know, something like Matador is is really good. The collaboration piece is huge for us. We really like that. The geospatial stuff, I mean, a lot of what we do in, in the environment realm is around, you know, mapping, knowing where things are, knowing where receptors are, all these kind of technical things, and, and mapping really helps us do that. So, you know, that's what we really look for in our software. We actually really focus on having you know APIs so that we can integrate with some of these bigger softwares like like SiteView that we can speak their language kind of thing. I love that you brought up that's you know all about data and we think about the energy transition we think about the energy evolution and part of that is harnessing data and doing it in a more effective way. You know we've done so many episodes talking about guys with clipboards out in the field right and again going back to this marriage of maps and spreadsheets and comms and and reporting and and actually really like what you brought up earlier, Sean, this idea of it, you know, it's actually a reporting platform as well. We're pulling data together. As we think about the ESG future, as we think about the data that we need to put together for what I think in the next two to three to four years will be formal reporting, almost like financial statements around environmental issues or around other ESG related issues. It's, it's so important that, that, you know, like what you said, Dougal, we were taking data, we're collecting it, but how are we using it? How can we present it? And how can it be valuable to us? So I was hoping you could expand a little bit more on that kind of that back end use of something like Matador and, and how you're translating all this data and actually making a valuable use at it. And, and ultimately, I think using it for reporting purposes, you know, for companies that are on the platform. Yeah, and I'll speak to it, I guess, from both sides, since I've sat on both sides of the equation. From a company standpoint, you know, you're running big programs, you're running, you know, lots of environmental advisors that sit in-house at these ENP groups have, you know, thousand thousand projects on the go at one time and keeping your finger on the pulse there is really challenging. So something like Matador that has a dashboard that you can take a quick snapshot and see where everything is, where your budgets are, so important when you're sitting on the in-house side of things. On the consulting side of things, where I currently reside, I mean, there's a lot of resistance, I'll be honest. You know, consultancies are based on billing hours at the end of the day, right? That's the honest truth of the whole thing. So, I mean, there is a lot of resistance. It's like, well, if I do things more efficiently, maybe that means that I'm, you know, taking something away from my business and I'm affecting my profitability. But I think there has to be a shift in mindset when it comes to that. This data that you're collecting allows you to do more projects, allows you to show your customer that the quality is consistent. And it helps in so many ways that I, you know, you could probably sit down and write a hundred different positives to using a software platform. I mean, 
people like Green Drop or something that does your lawn care, they can tell you exactly what they applied three years ago because they use a software platform. And, and we're saying that that has no value in the oil and gas industry. I, I would say that that's probably not a good statement to make. And it seems like before, you know, if, if I can say this, you know, profit profitability for a long time kind of overlapped our inefficiencies. And so it, it kind of made up for a lot of this, you know, for lack of a better word, sloppier, inefficient processing. But it, with costs and everything becoming more and more focused, it seems like this isn't just becoming a nice to have or maybe we can convince you of it. It's starting to become a necessity. Yeah, I would say that, you know, if you're not getting on the on the wagon, you're going to be left behind. There's no doubt about it. You know, just this is going to definitely be the the wave of the future. I mean, you, you think about something like a remediation project and how many times data is handled from the field all the way to the final report that a regulator sees. It's shocking how many times somebody has to sit, put it in a spreadsheet and check it, right? If a system can do that for you and you're collecting that once, man, that's powerful. No doubt about it. Kind of Jumping off of that, let's talk a little bit about the transparency side of it. It seems like if if you're going into a single platform and you've got multiple users that are acting, whether it's consultants on the outside, whether it's service providers that are generating data or pulling samples or whatever they're doing in the field and that kind of stuff, from a transparency standpoint, you know how are consultants reacting to that? How are companies reacting to that? You've got all this kind of data all on a single platform and it's visible to everyone. And and I think. You know, that's a key word for us, I think, going forward as an industry is being transparent and, and collecting data and talking about things. How is that playing out and, and how are people reacting, you think, to kind of that the Matador platform in that regard? Yeah, I think, you know, in general, transparency, although, I mean, let's face it, environment's a big business. There's no doubt about it. Whether it's in oil and gas, if it's industrial, whatever it might be, it is a huge business. And I think transparency in general may be kind of a little bit misconstrued that that's an issue. You know, there's lots of different ways that you can find information out. And and I think on the consulting side of things, using a platform like Matador, we're not here to hide anything from anybody. And, you know, I don't think companies in general, you know, I sat in-house at one point in time at an EMP company, and I never sat down and at my desk in the morning and thought, I need to hide something because it's going to cost us money. Never did that once in my life. And I guarantee you the hundreds of other colleagues that I've worked with over the years don't feel that way either. So I'm not sure. I understand what you're saying. And I, I don't think that anybody would have any issue with the transparency associated with a platform like Matador. Honestly, in my opinion, and from where I stand. Let me put those caveats in there. Yeah, no, no, of course, no, it's, it's all good. So Sean mentioned way back, he used the word stakeholder instead of shareholder, which I thought was really interesting because it seems like the primary you know, value prop of this is internal. But so can you talk a little bit about the shareholder aspect and how, how you see, from a, especially from a consulting standpoint, that you're, you know, you're looking, part of the lobby is not just you know, benefits in terms of cost efficiency, but that, as you mentioned, this transparency outside of the company itself. And maybe the other end of that question, maybe... And maybe if you can talk a bit about private companies versus public companies in that in that perspective. Yeah, I mean, public, it's pretty, I think the equation's fairly simple. I mean, you, you're really managing ARO at the end of the day, right? And you're affecting the balance sheet at the end of the day. So I think for, from a public standpoint, the more, the more you can handle the ARO, 
the better off you're going to be as, as a company. And it's, you can probably, you know, this is a Canadian example, but if you went to look at CAP as an example, they've got lots of information on their website and I would encourage anybody to look at it. They talk about how if you don't manage your ARO over the years, you get hit with this big lump at the end, right? And you've got, you know, eventually the oil and gas industry, if it were ever to, you know, things started running out and we had saw these huge mergers, you would have five large companies, probably the large companies that are that we know today, standing there holding the can to deal with ARO. Because at some point in time, the public just isn't going to allow development and production to keep going without some accountability for what's left at the end of the day. That's what I believe. And let me also put a caveat on that. I, I just think that, that those winds of change are are happening and, and it's in the future that's going to be a be a thing for sure. And then as far as shareholder value, I think, you know, the responsible management of your ARO and those, you know, big masses that you have out there just it increases shareholder value. It's got to, right? Sorry, your second question was from the consulting side of things. Yeah, just just in terms of how that would how that would play out, you know, from a shareholder and stakeholder aspect. Like, are you consulting the companies to value those meaningful aspects outside of this is a great thing for you? But can you can how, what's it like convincing that it's a great thing outside of just the the business itself? And can you real quickly tell the listener what ARO stands for and what that means? That's asset retirement obligations. So basically, anything that any ugly stuff you've got left over that you're going to have to clean it up at some point in time, and it basically becomes a negative on your balance sheet, right? At the end of the day, yeah. As far as as marketing, I guess is to to stakeholders. I mean, the benefit is quite clear, right? You're more efficiently turning over these remediation projects. You know, there's some efficiency gained from not visiting you know, a site at a time, you start to projectize, if that's even a word, you know, a few things together into one program, right? And you hit them all at once, and then you get out of there. You know, there's some jurisdictions now that are starting to try to push or at least prod some of the EMP companies to do that type of abandonment process. It's like, don't go in and do one this year, abandon a well one this year, and then go back to the same kind of area in three years and do it. If everything's dead, why not do it as one big program and get out of there, right? So I think there's, you know, that is a huge efficiency and using a program like Matador certainly helps with that. Visually, you can see exactly what you got to execute, right? Stakeholders, I think, really like it because of the visibility, right? I mean, you know, if you're, you can pull up a map and it's kind of the universal language to show what's happening, right? Especially when you use like a red light, green light, yellow light type mapping system. It's like, oh, all these sites are good to go and they're done. And oh, you got some issues here, but you really get an idea of the mix of what's going on pretty quickly, right? And unfortunately, I think the power of, or fortunately, the power of a platform like this is, is the transparency and being able to communicate to that that to people. Because I think a lot of the general public may not understand what's actually happening. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I think anything we can do to clear that up is positive. I want to have you put your in-house hat back on a little bit and, and expand on what we just talked about, really. We're talking about asset retirement obligations. We're talking about these things, all these things that we're trying to keep our hands around as we think about, you know, image for the industry. We think about, you know, just obligations to our communities and, and the people that are around us and, and making sure that we're doing, for lack of a better word, the right thing. But we've also, 
you know, over the last year experienced so much reduction in force. There's been so many staff reductions. I'm, I'm sure there are people that are in-house, very technical people that are in charge of exponentially more projects than they were in charge of before, but the company still wants to be focused on, you know, making sure, again, that we're doing the right thing, that we're tracking things. We know where we got green lights. We know where we got yellow lights. We know where we got red lights, right? And there's some technical person that understands what it means behind the colors, but they got to they tell the C-suite all about it, right? And what we're doing so that we can eventually tell that story. So just wanted to get your thoughts with that in-house hat on as, as we think about kind of the current staffing and what we think of about the size of the industry from a, you know, kind of a staffing standpoint going forward. You know, can Matador be a bridge to help, you know, us continue to do the right things with respect to AROs, but at the same time, not overwhelm the people that are there trying to accomplish it? Yeah, I think, you know, a platform like Matador or, or other software platforms for that matter, I mean, something's got to give in that whole scenario, right? You've got to do more with less. And it's nice to think that you could, you know, tack another six hours onto a 24-hour day, but that's not a possibility. So, you know, you got to look for these types of efficiency or, or ways of being more efficient, I guess, is is to use these types of platforms, you know, stop handling data so much, maybe you know, the data that you collect, you can get it into a report format through the software itself rather than having to then remove all of that and put it into reporting. So I think, you know, again, somebody much smarter than me at some point in time said you can only handle something like seven projects efficiently at one time. Well, when you expand past, you know, seven into the thousands, you're going to have to have something that alerts you to when things are going the wrong way, right? So and to that, and kind of as we get up towards the end, but as we go out, can you, so does that mean that the future worker, if you will, because sometimes we talk about the jobs that go away and the, and the skill sets that go away, but it seems like this is going to require a different skill set to come up to be able to kind of in that, in that frame of mind, what do you see as the worker of the future? Or what's the, what's the skill set going forward that can integrate in from a human standpoint, something like this kind of collaboration software wise? Yeah, I don't think we ever have to worry about the human component in that whole scenario. You're always going to have to have somebody that can make the decisions as we go. But, you know, the efficiency of of the data collection and managing it and, you know, quality control as far as, you know, even the apps that we use to collect data in the field, they have most people think, well, it's just a more efficient way to collect data, but it actually helps with training as well. So you're repeating a process all the time, right? doing it through an app. So I think, you know, it's going to be the future. There's no doubt about it, in my opinion, for sure. And I've completely forgotten the last part of your question. So you might have to <laughs> tell me what it was. So I was just wondering if, it, if there was, I don't like, what, what's the skill set going forward you see from a worker standpoint? It's in terms of an individual you know, training, not just training from a job site, but from an education standpoint, like prior to going into the, you know, if this is the future, if I'm a young person or if somebody wants to switch, you know, how does it, what do you think that skill set looks like? Yeah, I think for as far as like purely from an environmental standpoint, the science will be the science and you'll, you're you going to have to learn that. Being able to use platforms certainly will be important. But again, I always argue that a good software platform is intuitive. So, you know, most of the stuff that we try to work with, you know, if you've got a kid that's 10 years old and they can pick it up, if they can run through Facebook or they can do uh, TikTok. I'm going to date myself a bunch here, but if they can do those two things, then they should be able to run the software and at least collect the data. They may not know, you know, what they're observing. There's a technical component to that, but certainly how to use the software should be fairly intuitive. Gotcha. So I don't think we're in any danger of getting away from environmental professionals, at least I hope we're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. Well, Dougal, thank you so much for the insight. Appreciate the time. 
Absolutely. All right. And with that, we'll see y'all next week. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for April 2021. This month, we have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the Spring Pitch Party focused on clean tech. It'll be hosted at the Canon on April 6th. Next, we have our two online events, the University of Houston PES Career Fair on April 8th and the CSPG Geo Women eTalk on April 20th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information about any of the live streams or events we have coming up. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for April. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!